Welcome to episode number 10 of It's Not You, It's Me, a PMDD podcast. Can I just do a little mini celebration here since we're now starting to hit the double digit episodes? Now, this is probably why I would have added some sort of cheer sound effect or something, but I didn't want it to be annoying, so I left it out. But before we continue on, I thought it might be helpful to do a quick recap of things from the first episodes, and then we'll go on today with today's topic about the views and beliefs of menstruation in other cultures and religions. So far, we've covered that PMDD is not caused by changes in our hormones, but rather an abnormal sensitivity to those changes. Our uteruses are doing only what they're supposed to be doing. <clears throat> Excuse me if I, my voice starts to get a little weird. I'm battling seasonal allergies right now. Um, and tracking your cycle and symptoms is the most important first step you can take in getting a diagnosis. Unfortunately, being able to get diagnosed is still very much a problem in itself for various reasons. But part of the reason why we're all trying to wear red, raise awareness is so that more physicians are knowledgeable and able to give a proper PMDD diagnosis sooner than later. Because I know some of you are waiting or have waited 10 plus years to get your diagnosis. And making lifestyle changes is a good place to start. Like getting more aerobic exercise and limiting your intake of alcohol and caffeine. And making healthier food choices, which is good general practice anyway for better health. We've also covered that treatments for PMDD can include medications like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or antidepressants, uh, gonadotropin releasing hormone agonists as well, birth control, psychotherapy, alternative treatments like vitamins, supplements, and acupuncture, and surgery for some women. And I still plan to get more focused episodes on these, each of these in the future. And that's just a super brief overview, but I thought it would be nice to have a little refresher of some things that we've already touched on. So I hope you all like history and anthropology because we're about to get into some curious beliefs and rituals, some which you may or may not agree with. You may have different feelings about, but I would love to hear about them later. So when I'm doing research and reading articles, sometimes I get sucked down different rabbit holes. Like one article might cite another study, which takes me down that path. Then that will mention another study or a certain terminology that takes me down that path and makes me explore that view and so on. And that was how I ended up at today's topic. Like I've said before, it seems almost impossible to talk about menstrual disorders without bringing culture into the discussion. So in pursuing the topic of menstruation and culture, I found a chapter from the Best Practice and Research Clinical Obstetrics and Gynecology, which is kind of a mouthful to say, um, from 2016 that addressed just that. And these wonderful researchers presented an overview of how different ethnic groups and cultures around the world perceived or continue to perceive menstruation. And as I go through these, you'll start to notice some common things among them. And in an effort to better treat women that are seeking medical help, it's important that healthcare professionals be aware of the culture and the social beliefs about menstruation and what drives women or doesn't drive them to seek the help. As stated in the article, quote, the ultimate goal is to provide women with culturally sensitive and medically appropriate treatments, end quote. So let's start with the mythology of menstruation. Supernatural red wine was the term given to menstrual blood in Greek mythology, and it was thought to have miraculous powers. Given that they called it wine, I was curious if they drank the blood, because, um, you know, wine, drinking, but I wasn't able to find any information. And I know that sounds gross and crazy, but you'd be surprised what people used to do with menstrual blood. 
but it actually might have come from the Greek ritual of mixing the blood with wine to increase the fertility of the soil during spring planting. So that's that sounds more likely where they got the name. In Norse mythology, menstrual blood seemed to have great magic powers since bathing in a river of the blood was a way that Thor or was the way that Thor was able to reach the land of enlightenment and immortality. On the other hand, menstruation in Mayan mythology was not as wonderful. It was believed that menstruation was a punishment after the moon goddess disobeyed the rules of marital alliance when she slept with the sun god. Shame on her. She represented women's sexuality and fertility. And it was believed that her menstrual blood was stored in 13 jars where, get this, it transformed into things like snakes, snakes, insects, and poisons that were used in black sorcery. And for some reason, I really like this myth about the power of menstrual blood in the Cherokee uh, culture beliefs. And this wasn't the first time I had read about it either. So there was this man-eating monster named Stoneclad that had an impenetrable stone skin, and he was virtually indestructible. Oddly enough, the only weakness this monster had was that he could not bear the sight of menstruating women. So by order of a medicine man, seven menstruating women were found and stripped down and told to stand in a line where Stoneclad was expected uh, to walk along this trail. As Stoneclad passed each woman, his power dwindled until he finally collapsed and crumbled after passing the last woman. Talk about some power, right? And I guess the idea that women had the power to take down this monster is what's awesome to me. Because when you think about it, it really could have been any woman. It just happened to be those particular seven that were found that were menstruating at the time. And even though mythical stories are just that, myths, they can lay the foundation in which future beliefs and views are built, including affecting practices and how menstruating women are treated and whether they even seek treatment. And the terms menstruation and menses, menstruation is something that we're going to say a lot today, um, are derived from the Latin and Greek words meaning month and moon. And this concept that menstruation is in harmony with the phases of the moon comes from the observation that the menstrual cycles are in close approximation with the moon cycle. So they found that connection. And that's the time it takes for the moon to return back to the same relation, same position in relation to the sun as seen by an observer on Earth. And this idea of lunar phase locking, which sounds really awesome and makes me think of video games, but whatever, <laughs> was tested in a study over 10,000 women, which kind of no surprise to me, found no association between the time of menstruation and its timing with the lunar cycle. Spoiler alert, menstruation can occur at any time of the month. And you may have heard terms or phrases like cycle sisters, blood sisters, girls who go together, flow together, to, review, to refer to this belief that women who live together or sometimes work together, begin menstruating together. And this menstrual synchrony uh, was thought to be caused by pheromones. And if you're not familiar with pheromones are, they're chemicals released by our bodies with both men and women that can affect the behavior or physiology of others, like, you know, sexual pheromones. And while cycle sisters has a really nice ring to it, there's unfortunately no scientific evidence to support the belief of women's menstrual cycles becoming synchronized. But no matter what they say, Aline or my friend, you'll always be my cycle sister. So now let's get to the cultural beliefs and attitudes because this is going to be really interesting. Like most history, we'll begin in ancient Greece and Rome. 
and in this in his book Pliny the Elder wrote quote a menstruating woman who uncovers her body can scare away hailstorms wind whirlwinds and lightning if she strips naked and walks around the field caterpillars worms and beetles fall off the ears of corn end quote so here we have menstruating women being viewed as pretty powerful. And I can't help but wonder if during this time there were actually women standing out naked in hailstorms in an attempt to make them go away, because that must have sucked. And also how many poor women were probably struck by lightning because they were made to go outside to scare it away. And all this all this info makes you makes you wonder. In women's writings in ancient Greece and Rome portrayed menstrual blood as having medicinal benefits. Not only was it recommended as a treatment for things like malaria and epilepsy, no how it was administered, I'd kind of rather not know, um, but it was also recommended as a contraceptive for donkeys. Yeah. And although Pliny the Elder wrote about menstruating women essentially having powers, he also wrote that any contact with menstrual blood could cause seeds to dry up and crops to become barren. It could also turn wine sour, dull steel and ivory, and even had the power to cause bronze and iron to rust. And if dogs were to ingest menstrual blood, their bites would become infect infected with an incurable poison and would turn mad, which kind of sounds like rabies to me. And all these views by the Romans and Greeks were a little different than the ideals that the ancient Egyptians had towards menstruation. Menstruation was thought to be a time for cleansing and was believed to have some sort of healing power. And to manage their bleeding, they would use cloths like pads um, and would use materials like grass or papyrus to create tampon-like items. And while the Egyptologists think there might have been some taboos, they also believe they were not universal among the Egyptians. But they were able to find indications from an Egyptian book that taught morals and ethics that the blood was considered to be impure for a man to touch by discouraging them from having a career like a laundry worker, which meant they would have to touch the cloths that women used during their periods. And now from ancient Egypt, which was kind of brief, we move on to Africa. And this paper spoke about the hunter-gatherer tribe of the Kung, and hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Here, menstruation didn't seem like that big of a deal. Women in the tribe were able to hold positions that were almost equal to men, and menstruation was given little attention. But they also believed that a woman could start menstruating if she saw menstrual blood on another woman. So I guess it was best to avert your eyes. They did have the practice of menstrual huts, but whereas other cultures had had, had their huts outside of the village and away from the people of the community, this tribe had their menstrual hut within the village. And this is where girls who experienced their first menses would go, and it was common for the men to watch the women celebrate. So it sounds like it wasn't that much of a taboo. Um, it sounds like it was celebrated, and they didn't really give that much thought to it. And speaking of menstrual huts, let's go back to the Cherokees. They observed the practice of isolating menstruating women into huts away from the family and friends and outside of the community because of how the blood was thought to be powerful. But blood in general and its tie to menstruation seemed to be a pretty big role uh, in their belief system. They used it to fight off illness by practicing periodic bloodletting, and they believed it not only helped to fight illness but provided strength. And the men felt they could appropriate the power of menstruating women through episodic bloodletting. So it was common that they would participate in like this scratching ritual ceremony before battle because they were harnessing that power. But one culture that did not observe menstrual huts 
was the Chinese, but that doesn't mean they were cool with women having periods. They associated menstrual blood with pain and death and thought it to be dirty. Menstruating women were to wash their laundry separate from other clothes, particularly men's, and were restricted from worshiping in public ceremonies and temples, but they were allowed to worship in private. So they could still participate, just not in public with everyone else. <laughs> While they were menstruating, women were also not allowed to attend events like weddings or funerals. Now, intercourse while menstruating was pretty much a no-no. Since menstrual blood is believed to be polluted, if a man were to have sex with a woman while on her period, it's thought that he, would, he himself would become polluted and would develop sores on his penis. And this paper writes that religion is perhaps the most significant factor informing the belief over centuries of time that menstruation should be viewed as something to fear and be ashamed of. And most presented here, um, most presented religions carry a negative attitude toward menstruation and menstruating women and believe menstrual blood to be dirty. In Islam, there is no separation of the menstruating woman. She is allowed to be around her husband, but the only thing she can't do is have period sex because menstruation is thought to be a harmful thing. And the Quran instructs men to leave menstruating women, <clears throat> excuse me, menstruating women alone until they are quote-unquote cleansed. Interestingly, menstruating women are advised to not enter mosque for prayer, but are allowed to be present at services. So I guess they can just stand outside. Um, they're also excused from fasting during this time, which is probably for the best because of uh, maybe problems with iron deficiencies or anemia that might present. And here is where we see the first practice of ritual cleansing. In Islam, a spiritual bath is required after a woman has, fin has finished her period. And the amount of blood or bleeding is also divided into three categories. There's slight, medium, and profuse. And there are also distinctions in regards to the length of time a woman and bleeds and what is considered menstruation. From what I understood, normal menstruation has to be a minimum of three days and a maximum of ten. If a woman bleeds for less than three, it is not considered a period. If she bleeds for more than ten days, any bleeding after the ten days is considered irregular. And because irregular bleeding is not considered menstruation, women in this state are not barred from praying. But there is somewhat of a catch. The validity of their prayers are dependent on her fulfillment of certain acts. These acts include changing her pads and washing herself before every prayer. Sex, on the other hand, is not prohibited if a woman with irregular bleeding is only slightly bleeding. If she has medium or heavy bleeding, sex is allowed only if she cleanses herself before. So these irregular bleeding women are allowed to go to prayer, have sex, but they are prohibited to touch the Quran. She can only do this after ritual bathing. And I never knew how strict Judaism was about menstruation. Here, ritualistic bathing was also required of women after their periods. And Leviticus instructed that women be separated from, uh, for seven days and that anything she touched or, or any, anything she sat or laid on during her period would become a carrier of impurity. And anyone who she came into contact with would also become impure. And similar to Islam, Judaism also has a term in view regarding women who bleed past a certain amount of time, in this case, seven days. Anything after that is considered normal. Common practice for women uh, required having to count seven abnormal, discharge-free days from the end of the periods, after which they would then be considered clean. 
but it wasn't quite that simple to count and be done. And I'm going to read this uh, quote right from Leviticus. Then on the eighth day, she shall take for herself two turtle doves or two young pigeons and bring them to the priest, to the doorway of the tent of the meeting. The priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. So the priest shall make atonement on her behalf before the Lord because of her impure discharge. In the Orthodox Jewish community, women are able to test um, if they've stopped menstruating. And to carry out this ritual, a woman has to count seven days following what she believes to be the end of her period and then bathe herself at sunset. And at this time, she would also take a special cloth to wrap around her finger and wipe it around the inside of her vagina. And these cloths are called bedikat cloths. Um, that's B-E-D-I-K-A. And this is where I ended up going off on another tan- tangent because I was curious and wanted to see what these were like. So these cloths can actually be ordered through places like Amazon and Walmart, but other websites carry them as well. A majority, if not all of them, looked to be made of cotton and were about two by four inches in size, like little squares. And one brand I saw even said they were rabbinically approved. So again, here's where I kind of go off and research and find out more about stuff. Anyway, here there are also rules about period sex. Uh, There is none of it. And Orthodox Judaism isn't even goes so far to as to prohibit men and women from even touching or passing items to each other while the woman is menstruating. And if these restrictions are violated, then the woman and the man are isolated from everyone. So here's a fun fact about me. One of the courses I took in college for fun was major world religions. And while it was a fairly brief overview of the major religions, I couldn't help but recall it because of this article. It made made me wonder about the major world religions today because I've been out of college 12 years, so I figured things maybe might have changed by now, so I tried searching. Unfortunately, the only relevant data I could find was from 2010, uh, but at that time, Christianity was the dominant world religion at about 33%, and I'm rounding up here. And this was followed by Muslim, Hindu, atheist slash agnostic, and other, which were all tied at about 12%, and Buddhist and Jewish wrapped up the list. And the reason I bring this up is because we're now going to get into Christianity. And most denominations don't follow specific rituals, though there are some that will not allow menstruating women to receive communion. And I was raised Catholic, but never stayed religious, never really followed it, and I'm not familiar with 99% of what's in the Bible and all of the writings about Christianity or Catholicism. So it surprised me to learn that Jesus, uh, there was a story of Jesus having an encounter with a menstruating woman. It was believed that he cured her of her menstrual bleeding of 12 years. Now, whether that was continuous bleeding for 12 years, I don't know. But the story is the woman touched the border of his garment and she was miraculously cured. Now, no offense to religion, But I can't help but wonder what medical condition that woman might have been diagnosed with today's medicine for having bleeding that long. So this won't be our first time talking about menstrual huts here. We find them again in Hinduism. In Nepal, Hindus commonly practice chapaudi, which is forcing menstruating women to live in menstrual huts for three nights. And these huts were normally located 10 to 15 meters away from the main house. 
So, I mean, I guess kind of nearby, but still not too close. And these huts were often made of materials like mud and stone, so there really is not much to them. And once a woman finished her period, she would then partake in an oil bath to become purified again and rejoin the community. And if these women did not live in the hut, they would then be blamed for unfortunate events that would happen like water shortages. And while the practice of Chapati was banned in 2005 by Nepal's Supreme Court, it's still often carried out. Again, my natural curiosity was triggered and I went off on another tangent of exploring menstrual huts in the news today. In February of this year, there was an article in the New York Times about a 21-year-old woman who died in a menstrual hut in Nepal. Because there's really nothing to the buildings, she started a fire to keep herself warm and was found dead the following morning from smoke inhalation. And while that's a common danger, things like animal bites are also a danger as well as exposure to the elements. And unfortunately, she is not the first woman to die due to smoke inhalation. Sadly... Sexual assaults are also common while these women are in the huts. But despite these dangers, women who still follow the practice do so because of social pressure or guilt. Now remember, this practice was banned in 2005, but a Nepali government survey from 2010 found that 19% of menstruating women still follow the practice. And I'm not sure if that's at under their own volition or whether it is their family or community that forces them to observe the practice. And the Nepali government has even gone so far as to criminalize the practice and jail anyone for up to three months and fine them 3,000 rupees if they force a woman into a menstrual hut. And depending where you're listening to this, that's about 33 pounds or 43 US dollars. Unfortunately, women's rights activists have said that police are not enforcing the bans or punishments. But I did see a news article from January of this year that a withdrawal of state support services like food allowance is being used as a penalty in an effort to enforce the ban. And I think this really illustrates uh, the power of religion and culture among its peoples, and these ideologies are what shape their way of life, including seeking out health care and such. And it does to somewhat help to paint a better picture as far as why women act, um, you know, seek out treatment in certain ways in regards to their menstruation or womanly issues, if you would call them, um, because it's how they're raised. It's the beliefs that they were constantly surrounded by. Now with Buddhism, the way menstruation is viewed depends on the former denomination. In Theravada Buddhism, menstruation is viewed as a natural thing that women have to experience. The Buddha does not teach any restrictions against women during this time, and the focus is more on developing a good mind, one of love and kindness. But over time, some various Buddhist cultures have forgotten this teaching, and women are thought to lose chi, or their spiritual energy, during menstruation. Side note, a menstruating woman is thought to attract ghosts because Buddhists believe that ghosts feed on blood. thought that was kind of interesting. Per the research presented, um, Japanese Buddhism is perhaps the most stringent against menstruating women. Menstruation is written as the last of the seven grave vices of women. Now, I don't know if you've noticed yet, but the number seven seems very common in these different religions and cultures in regards to menstruation. Why? I have no idea. Well, on their parents' periods, 
women are viewed as unclean and are prohibited from entering monasteries and temples. And you've all heard of karma, right? Well, during her period, a woman is believed to be accruing negative karma that whole time. Which is unfortunate since having a period isn't really a choice. We can't exactly turn it on and off. And of all religions that are mentioned in this paper, Sikhism seemed to be the most forgiving. It teaches that menstruation is required for the creation of life of human beings, and it's not considered to be a pollutant or a threat. And the practice of treating women differently and viewing them as impure while menstruating was condemned by the founder of Sikhism, a view that was very opposite of most of the other religions that we've covered. And in case you're wondering, Sikhism was found in the 15th century, so it's not quite as old as some of the, the other religions, say like Christianity, and maybe that's why it seems a little more progressive in its views. In Jainism, which was founded in the 6th century, uh, they have the Digambara Jain sect that believes menstrual blood is impure. And there's that word again, impure. I think I've said that word almost as many times as I've said menstruation in this episode. You could probably make a drinking game out of it. Um, but in Shinto, the native religion of Japan, menstruating is believed to be a kind of death. Which I don't know that this is exactly why, but I could kind of see it as maybe referring to a spiritualistic death of a potential life. But that's just me, my interpretation. And while cultures and religions form much of the foundations of society, extensions of these beliefs have also found their way into science and medicine. In 1920, Bella Schick, a professor of pediatrics at Columbia, proposed that menstrual blood was toxic. 20 years later, an anthropologist by the name of Ashley Montague uh, supported the idea of toxic menstrual blood and its effects on being able to wither plants, cause bread to fall, spoil pickles, and other ridiculous things. And I can't believe this shit actually happened, but two specialists in, the in 1950 felt the idea of poisonous menstrual blood had been supported with their testing of injecting the blood into lab rats. Luckily, an Israeli gynecologist by the name of Bernard Zondek was able to disprove that stupidly ridiculous claim um, by adding antibiotics to the menstrual blood prior to injecting the lab rats, and the lab rats did not die. So his way of disproving, I still kind of like, really? But at least he helped to uh, debunk that belief. And I also learned that he was the physician who developed the first reliable pregnancy test in 1928. So one of the big questions I see uh, from all this is what to do. Is it possible to change a whole culture's or people's view that have been cemented and passed on from generation to generation about how their attitudes towards menstruation and women who have periods? In the U.S., education about periods often comes with the mixed message that it's normal, all women go through it, but it's something to hide and you don't ever talk about. So to help all the, tie these views and beliefs into healthcare and health education, here are some numbers for you. A cross-sectional study of 995 village women in India found that 62% of them had no idea what caused their menstruation, and only about 28% of those women used sanitary napkins. And of the women that didn't, only 25% would have been willing to buy them. Those are kind of some staggering numbers, even though it's a small sample. 
But because of the this concept of menstruating of a menstruating woman being impure in her blood as usually being a way to rid the body of those impurities, a heavy flow is kind of seen as the norm and even desired in some cases cases, which then leads a a delay or absence of women seeking proper medical care and often a high incidence of anemia or iron deficiency because they don't see it as something that's not normal. So I hope you've learned just as much as I did from this information. And one of the main takeaway points from this paper is that, quote, healthcare providers should provide women with culturally sensitive and medically appropriate treatments for menstrual disorders, end quote. But unfortunately, the reality is that a lot of bias, racism, and exclusion still occurs. It's a lot to think about, and it's just a small slice of the bigger pie of healthcare and inclusion. But like I said in the beginning, I thought it would be helpful to gain some knowledge and a better understanding about different worldviews regarding menstruation. Like always, I would love to know your thoughts on this and hear your questions if you have any. You can message me on Twitter, Instagram at PMDD Podcast, or shoot me a message through my website at PMDDPodcast.com. And like a previous episode, I thought it would be nice to end this one with a quote as well. So I will leave you with this. Culture does not make people. People make culture. If it is true that the full humanity of women is not our culture, then we can and must make it our culture. Thank you for listening.